0: Well, good morning. I don't know if you guys are, was the race still a problem getting here this morning or was it uh, not too bad? The first service crowd, it was a little tough. Uh, My wife, she ended up in Wisconsin trying to get around the race to get here. But here we are, here we are. And uh, we're continuing on in our sermon series called Created to Need. And if you've been tracking with the sermon series, you know that each week we've been looking at one of the core human needs, things like our need for dignity and love, purpose, peace. Last week, Pastor Eric preached on our need for guidance. It was a great sermon. Uh, One of our, uh, someone visited new last week and asked one of our elders uh, if that was our, is that your regular preacher, they said. And our elder said, unfortunately, no. (laughs) I tell myself he was kidding. That's what I tell myself, so. Uh, no, grateful for uh, Pastor Eric's message last week and for Pastor Johnny preaching, and we're blessed to have uh, such great, uh, able preachers uh, that can fill the pulpit here. So, but looking at our needs, and this morning, we're looking at our need for life, our need for life. And someone uh, earlier this week asked me, well, what's the need of the week? What are we talking about on Sunday? I said, well, it's the need for life. And they said, but don't we already have it? And I said, yeah, we do until we don't, and then that's the problem, right? It's important to clarify at the outset what I mean by life, though, because I think sometimes we can overly spiritualize uh, life, particularly as Christians, I think we can do this. I mean, quite simply, being alive, as in Abraham Lincoln is not alive. Those of us in this room are alive, right? Or to state it again, we're talking about our need for physical bodily life. I think sometimes, as I said, as Christians, we can, we can inappropriately spiritualize the concept of life, as though physical life isn't really all that necessary. The body, take it or leave it. Physical life, take it or leave it. What we really need is spiritual life. But as we're going to see, that's not the Bible's conception of life. As human beings, as creatures, we have a reflexive impulse for self-preservation. This is innate to what it means to be a human being. We long to each of us stay alive, to have our heart keep pumping blood, our lungs keep breathing oxygen in and out. This is the default setting of the creature. And only in the most direst of straits, whether because of extreme psychological or physical pain, will we prefer death to life. So a premise for this sermon as we get going, and I want you to just think about this as we move through our sermon, we need physical life to be fully human. We need physical life to be fully human. Just as human needs love, we need purpose, we need peace, we need dignity, we need guidance, so too we need physical life but the reality, of course, is that we live in a world of death. And so this morning, what we're doing as we explore this need for life, we're going to look at the Bible's conception of life. Where does it come from? Where does, life, uh, where does life originate? How do we hang on to it? And then how do we cope living in a world that is marked by death, given our innate need for life? There's going to be three basic parts to the sermon. If you've been around for the sermon series, it'll follow the same pattern. We're going to look in the early chapters of Genesis for the Bible's depiction of life and the story of how we were given life, how we lost life. Then we're going to, the next movement of the sermon, we'll be looking at the ways that we try to cope with the fact that we need life but don't have it. And then we're going to close out our sermon with the third part, looking at the scripture that was read for us already, Romans 6, 1 through 11, looking at how God restores life to us in Christ. If you're visiting today, perhaps you're not a Christian or you're exploring the Christian faith, I invite you to listen in particular as well. Uh, the, the idea of life, the need for life, is not distinct to any particular religion or race or socioeconomic group. All of us as human beings have a shared need for life. And as I unpack how the Bible talks about our need for life, the reality of death, and the recreative power of God, I encourage you to, to think about these things and think about the way uh, that you need life. And does the Bible speak true to your own experience and your own conditions? I invite you to listen in for that. All right, so we're going to begin with the early chapters of Genesis, as I said, and we're going to look at Genesis chapters 1 through 8. We're going to be covering a fair amount of ground this morning, so you can get your Bible open and turn there, and I'm just going to kind of walk us through bits and pieces of it. But we're going to look at the Bible's account of the creation and then decreation, and then recreation of the world in Genesis 1 through 8. The creation, decreation, and recreation of the world. And my aim here in recounting the story of the creation, decreation, and recreation of the world is to give us a framework, a conceptual framework for understanding what the Bible teaches all throughout the Scriptures about the nature of human life death, and rebirth. So we're going to be looking, as it were, at the macro or the cosmic account of death, and then we're going to zoom in from that framework to look at the micro account or the personal account of death. So to begin with the passage that we've already looked at a number of times here in our sermon series, but taking us back into Genesis chapter 1, the first two verses of Genesis chapter 1, Genesis 1.1, in the beginning, God created the heaven's and the earth. Now this very first verse, verse of the Bible is meant in some ways to be a header for all that's going to come later in chapter 1. Maybe your Bible already has a heading that was given there by the editor of your particular version. Mine has the creation of the world across the top that begins chapter 1. That's in many ways what verse 1 is. It's the it's the writer's heading about what's all going to come. The the Lord makes the heavens and the earth. Okay, well how did he do it? And then Genesis one, two, through the remainder of the chapter is how the Lord went about making the heavens and the earth. And so in Genesis 1, 2, it's as though the curtain has pulled back and we are given a window now into the creative power and uh, process of God. And as the curtain pulls back, what we see is an earth without form or void, Genesis 2, and darkness over the face of the deep, The deep is a reference to the water, to the the waters that are covering the earth. So we're introduced in the very beginning to the picture of a water world, dark, chaotic, turbulent, and the Spirit of God hovers over the face of the deep. This is the beginning that we see in Genesis 1 and 2, chaos, no form, stormy, dark waters, But we don't fear because the Spirit of God is hovering over the waters, and God begins to speak. And as he speaks, the Spirit begins to stir. And first, dry land appears, and then plants, and then birds, and then animals, and finally, humanity by the time we reach the end of the chapter. And it is the breath of God, the Spirit of God, The wind of God, these words in the Hebrew are all the same word. So breath, spirit, wind, they all are the same word. And it's the breath, the spirit of God that animates all of creation and brings it to life. God creates matter out of nothing, but all that the world is at this point is just atoms bouncing back and forth upon each other until God works his magic through his spirit and injects his creation with breath. With life, To go back to a passage that we started this whole series in, Psalm 104, the psalmist speaks about this creative power of God when he declares, when you, O Lord, send forth your spirit, your breath, your creatures are created, and you renew the face of the ground. When you take away their breath, they die, and they return to the dust. The psalmist is reminding us, that the life that runs throughout the world, the life by which we live and by which every other creature lives, is a life that is on loan from God. He is the source and the fount of life. When His Spirit brings life into the world, the world teems. And that's the picture we get in Genesis chapter 1. God turns this dark, chaotic water world into a world pulsing with living creatures full of variety and fertility. So we have this living, fecund, life giving world that we see in Genesis chapter 1. But then we get to Genesis chapter 6. Genesis chapter 6 marks the turn of the world fully into death. So we've been tracking along mostly the story of Adam and Eve as we've been looking at Genesis uh, 1, 2, and 3. And if you recall, the Genesis 1 and 2 start very well, but then you get to Genesis 3, and we have human rebellion against God and death follows. That's the bad news account of the story on a micro scale. But what happens in Genesis 3 to Adam and Eve is what happens Globally, cosmically to the world in Genesis 6. If Genesis chapter 3 is the fall of Adam and Eve, Genesis chapter 6 is the fall of the entire world. So God creates a living world full of life in Genesis 1 and 2, but then we get to Genesis 6, and the world has so thoroughly turned away from God that love, dignity, and especially peace has died out. Turning your Bibles to Genesis chapter six, just move a few uh, chapters ahead, and you look here in Genesis chapter five, or Gen- Genesis chapter six, verse five, rather, for how poorly things have gone. We read this, and the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. It's a stiff indictment about what has become of the world that God has made. And in particular, as you read down these through chapter 6, you see that violence now racks the world. Death and bloodshed. Then we read this later on. The earth was corrupt in God's sight and filled with violence. Sinful actions, rebellions against God, have led to, to a corrupt, sinful condition. The world is so corrupt is so awash in violence and bloodshed that there is only one cure. And God brings then the flood upon the earth to destroy all living things. And so in Genesis chapter 6 and 7, we see the judgment upon, of God upon a corrupt and sinful world, this judgment of the flood. But note this. The world was created out of a watery chaos and now is being returned to watery chaos. God is unmaking the world. He is uncreating his creation. That's the point of the flood. He is starting over. He is returning the world back to its primeval and uncreated state. If you move forward to Genesis chapter 8, verse 1, We see that by 8, verse 1, we have returned back to Genesis 1, verse 2. In Genesis 1, verse 2, the curtain opens up and we see the water world, the chaotic abyss and the Spirit of God hovering over the face of the deep. And in Genesis 8, 1, we have God remembering Noah in the midst of this now chaotic water world. And look at here at the second half of verse 1 in chapter 8. And God made a wind, a breath, A spirit blow over the earth and the waters subsided. We have the same situation now. The wind of God is over the face of the deep. And he is now ready to recreate. Like Genesis 1, the spirit of God begins the work of recreation in Genesis 8 the breath, the wind of God drives back the floodwaters, causing dry ground to appear, just as he did in Genesis chapter 1. And then, if you read on through Genesis 8 in a remarkably beautiful and parallel way, the Spirit of God recreates, as it were, the world in Genesis chapter 8. The dry ground appears first, And then the plants appear. And then birds are released back into the world. And then finally, humans and animals are released back into the world. And so we have, in Genesis 8, a recreation of the world that was decreated in 6 and 7 from the world that was originally created in chapters 1 and 2. So here's a key pattern that is established then all throughout Scripture. We'd see this. We could go through and look all throughout Scripture. When God undoes the damage of sin, the new thing he makes isn't an annihilation of the old thing that was broken, but a repair and renewal of his original intention. God made the world. It became corrupt through sin. God unmade the world. And then God remade the world. That's the cycle of life and death. That's the cycle of redemption. And it holds true not only for a cosmic level, the whole earth, but for our individual lives as well. We go back to Genesis 2, and we see that Adam is made from the dust. God breathes into him the breath of life. Adam is a living creature because he lives by the breath of God, made from the dust. But then Adam sins against God in Genesis 3. And when he sins against God, he, something breaks inside of him. He becomes corrupt. And so God deals with Adam's corruption by death. But death is the unmaking of Adam. He is returned back into the dust. And so what death is that we learn from Genesis 1 and 2 in the story of Adam, what we learn from cosmically and globally with the story of the flood, death is the unmaking of the creature. It is the decreation of the creature. To be alive is to be a creature that lives by the borrowed breath of God. But sin severs our relationship with God and, left unchecked, thoroughly corrupts the good creation that God has made. And God's judgment upon sinful humanity is decreation, the unmaking of the creature. That's what death is. Death is the creature being unmade. And this is The reality of the world that we were born into since time immemorial. The story of humanity is the story of a people one step ahead of the train. We were created to need life as creatures. Of course, we need life, but our life is now a fleeting life, a dying life. From the moment that we are born and we take our first breath, from that moment, we begin our sure and inevitable slide into death. And the futility of this has weighed heavy upon the human heart from as far back as we have begun to reflect on these realities. There are, I think, a number of ways that human beings living with the need for life but faced with the reality of pending death try to cope it might be more than th- ways than three, but I have three ways, I think, that we do try to cope. I think the first way we try to cope is we just simply choose not to think about the reality of death. The thought of death threatens to overwhelm us, and so we just don't think about it. If you've talked to anyone that sells life insurance, this is one of the challenges of selling life insurance, because no one wants to talk about the fact that they're going to die, Right? So who wants to buy things that make them think about their own mortality? And so we distract ourselves from the reality of death. I mentioned Ernest Becker uh, in the very first sermon. He's a Jewish agnostic uh, 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 psychologist and... um, He wrote a book called The Denial of Death. And his thesis throughout his book is that uh, death is this specter that hangs over, uh, as a cloud over all of our lives. We can't handle it if we stare it in the face. And so what we do is we we distract ourselves from the reality uh, that death is the end for each of us. And he writes this. He says lots of really interesting, profound things. I think his thesis is right. But he says this. He says, modern man is drinking and drugging himself out of the awareness of death or he spends his time shopping, which is the same thing. (laughs) And I think that's the reality in which most of us live, right? Is we don't let our mind chase too far down the road to the end. We just spend our time shopping. And we just move from one moment to the next, not thinking about the reality of death. But death is the inevitable end of each one of us here. And when we can't help but think about it. I think we move to the second way we try to cope. We tell ourselves lies. We tell ourselves lies. We tell ourselves that death is just a transition from one place to the next. But the Bible actually doesn't teach that death is merely the happy parting of the spirit from the body. We are not, as all the Hallmark cards just so kind of optimistically and and sentimentally say, just embarking on the next great adventure. That's what the pagan philosophers of old used to say. Philosophers like Plato and Seneca and Aristotle Socrates, they talked about death as though it were some uh, some great adventure where the spirit would just go off into the realm of the heavens. And of course, who wouldn't want to die is what they taught. But this is not the Bible's perception of death. The Christian vision of death actually problematizes death in more dramatic ways. Death isn't merely the natural parting of the spirit from the body. It is God's judgment upon a corrupt humanity. It is the unmaking of the creature. And this is why death is a terror to the human being, regardless of what we tell ourselves. Whatever lies we tell ourselves, when we come face to face with death, suddenly, reflexively, we recoil from death. Because we don't, we, don't, uh, we don't intuitively move towards death as a blessing because it's not a blessing. According to the Bible, death is the great enemy. It is the great problem of the world. It is the great problem that Jesus has come to resolve. And trying to pretend that we don't care about the preservation of our bodies will always be inauthentic to our core humanity. There is no peace down that road. We try to tell ourselves lies to make ourselves feel better about death, and when the lies don't work, we just go back to shopping. All right? We just go back to trying not to think about death. The third way I think that we deal with death, and perhaps this isn't really a coping mechanism, but perhaps is the most honest is that we just live in fear. I think this could be especially true for those that are uh, introspective, uh, maybe the more philosophically inclined, and we, we are able to project out into the future and look at the reality of death in the face. Or perhaps this is especially true for those who have suffered significant trauma in their life. In trauma, our physical safety is compromised in some significant way. And trauma in frightening and terrifying ways brings us face to face with our own mortality and frailty. If you're a victim of trauma or you know someone that's a victim of trauma, significant trauma, victims, trauma victims know that in their bodies at a visceral level, the platitudes and lies don't work. That the things that we tell ourselves or trying to deny the reality don't, just simply doesn't work because trauma victims have seen the mortality and frailty of life we have innately uh, in our bodies a way of responding to threats that come at us the now i'm going to so i i said automatic nervous system in the first service and then i was told that's not it and and it's uh, a doctor in the house autonomic. autonomic autonomic thank you i actually wrote a book in which I wrote, automatic nervous system. <laughs> so, only if this sermon had been preached earlier, in any case. The autonomic nervous system, which we're going to call the ANS for, for short. The autonomic nervous system, the way that it works is that th- as threats come at us, our body naturally and reflexively produces in us shots of adrenaline so that we can either fight or flight away from the danger. And therapy for trauma victims is, in many respects, an effort to help the person feel safe again. Because what happens in a victim of trauma is that the body responds with all this adrenaline, and then as the moment of danger passes, the body doesn't relax. And trauma victims live with this heightened sense of arousal of the danger that is around them. And what therapy does is is to help people feel safe again, to to recognize that the danger has passed, to help them realize that they don't need to be afraid and that it's going to be okay. And then as they come to this sense of things, of the danger escaping, then the ANS descends and brings them back to a state of equilibrium equilibrium and normal. And thank God uh, for the insights of compassionate uh, and, and uh, insightful psychologists, therapists, clergy who help people move through and then past, not the other side of their trauma. But what if, considered on the grand global bird's eye view, it really isn't going to be okay? What if the danger is still out there What if victims of trauma have seen more clearly than the rest of us that human beings really are vulnerable and frail and destined for the dust and that our moments of physical safety are really just a reprieve from the inevitable end that awaits each of us? If I ran into the room in a panic, fear all over my face, Perspiration running down my brow, and I shouted, "We're all going to die! We're all going to die!" That would no doubt panic many of you. Your 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 nervous system would get all alarmed. You might feel your stomach drop. What is this danger that our pastor is so afraid of? And then I would say, "Oh, I'm just kidding. Uh, we're not all going to die." And then you'd be, "Oh, it's it's all good now." But who are we kidding? We are all of us going to die. This is the reality of the world in which we live. The survival rate is zero. (laughs) None of us are getting out of here alive. We grieve death. We flee it. We fight it. We mock it. We pretend that we don't care. But no matter how we try to cope, we cannot escape it. And if that were the end of the story, I mean, how despairing it would be. Ernest Becker, who doesn't have... The, uh, the comfort of faith in God, he, he looks out into the great abyss of death, the blackness, the finality of it, and he recognizes that there can be no hope. And so we must, he, he admires people of religion who have found some solace. He doesn't think it's true, but he recognizes that trying to live your life without some sense of life beyond death, it just is impossible. And this is, why we, this is why we mask ourselves from it and we, we cloud our vision of it. If there was no hope beyond the final word of death. I mean, where, where would we go? What would life really be worth living for? But there is a word of hope. Adam is made from the dust. He is unmade back into the dust. And we don't see the hope really, truly, that the Bible offers until the coming of Christ, when the man from the dust is remade. When we begin to see that there is hope for those of us that descend back into our uncreated state, as it were, the passage that was read for us, Romans chapter 6, verses 1 through 11, turn there. I want to end our time this morning reflecting on the hope that we have of the gospel in Romans 6, 1 through 11, page 942 in your pew Bible, if you're using the pew Bible. But in Romans chapter 6, 1 through 11, the apostle Paul is writing to the church in Rome and he's wanting to remind them of the hope of the gospel. And and as he is doing this, he points back to their baptism. And he wants to remind them of the hope of the gospel by reminding them of what their baptism teaches them. And he says this, do you not know, thinking back to your baptism, do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. The Apostle Paul is saying that Jesus went into the grave and he died, and we've been united with Jesus in his death. That's what the baptism is a picture of, of going down into the grave. And then just as Jesus was raised from the dead, we are raised with him. Look what he says here in verse 5. If we have been united with him in a death like his, then we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. How was Jesus raised? Jesus was raised with a body that could be touched. Remember, he came among his disciples and they thought when they saw him that he was a ghost. And you remember what he did to prove that he wasn't a ghost? Remember what he did? He ate. He ate some fish, because ghosts don't eat, but Jesus ate. And then Jesus, standing on the Mount of Ascension, in his body, ascends to God in bodily form. He didn't become a spirit as he ascended. Somewhere, let this sink in and blow your mind away, and I don't even know how to comprehend it, but somewhere Jesus exists in God's presence in a body. For the last 2,000 years, he has had a body. And what Romans chapter 6 and the Apostle Paul is reminding us is that though we go down into the grave, into the dust, if we are with Christ, united with Christ, by the Spirit, by the breath, by the wind of God, then he will recreate us just as he has given life and brought Jesus back from the dead. The hope that we have of the gospel is not that we just die, leave our bodies in the ground, and go off to, to disembodied spiritual state to hang out with Jesus in his disembodied spiritual state with all the angels in their disembodied spiritual state. That is not God's intent for human beings. God created us as earth people with bodies, and when we sinned and messed it up, he didn't just scrap that project, he sent Christ to recreate that project to restore to us our bodies. God doesn't meet our need for physical life by removing our need for physical life. And I think sometimes we think that as Christians, that the way that God deals with our need for physical life is taking away our need for physical life. That's not how he deals with any of our needs. Our need for love is not by removing our need for love. Our need for dignity is not by removing our need for dignity. He meets our need for physical life by giving us new physical life in Christ. The hope of the gospel as proclaimed in our baptism and preached is that we will bodily be bodily raised with Christ and that everything that God has done for Jesus, he will do for those who belong to Jesus. That's the hope that we have of the gospel, that God will remake us, not merely in some ethereal spiritual way, but truly And literally and bodily there is hope beyond this life the promise of God is that we will be raised and recreated into a world free of death a world of safety and peace and security it is a hard truth that we live in a world of death a world that is not safe to our bodies But the Apostle Paul reminds us at the end of 1 Corinthians 15 that though death currently reigns, and death still does currently reign, that though death currently reigns, it was the last enemy and it will be defeated when Jesus comes back in his own body. And he will return bodily and he will raise his people bodily and death will be put to death and will be no more. We need not fear death, not because it isn't terrible, because death is terrible. It is the great enemy of humanity. But we don't need to fear it, not because it isn't terrible, but because the life of God in Jesus is greater than the death that plagues humanity. God is the one who gave us life to begin with. He is the one who created us and made us from the dust. And he is the one who has the power to recreate us, to raise us again from the dust. We all have an innate need for physical safety, for physical life. Place your need for safety, your need for life into the hands of your heavenly Father just as Jesus did. Jesus teaches us the way to trust God with our lives. doesn't mean that we won't encounter a cross. Jesus certainly did encounter a cross, but it means that the crosses of our lives are not the final word. It means that just as God delivered and vindicated Jesus who had faith in his father, so too God will deliver and vindicate thus those of us who have faith in Jesus. And it's the hope of the resurrection that allows us to give our lives freely in the present. Many of you know of Jim Elliott. He was a missionary to the Aucca Indians, I believe back in the 1950s, and he along with four others were martyred, killed as they tried to enter into a tribal context to bring the gospel. They were speared to death. Jim Elliott was, I believe, 25 at the time of his death, just a young man, but he penned these words before he died. He wrote, He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep, to gain what he cannot lose. And Jim Elliott knew that at the end of the day, no matter whether it was in a jungle by a spear, whether it was in the States by a car accident, or on his deathbed at 85 of old age, he was going to lose his life. We cannot hold on to our lives. Slips through our grasp. And it's not foolish, but indeed it is wisdom to give what we can't lose, to give what we can't keep, to gain from God that which we can't lose. Because the life that God gives us in Christ is an eternal life, an unending life, a life that is secure by the power of God. Romans 12:1 and 2, the Apostle Paul says that we should offer our bodies as living sacrifices. Not all of us will be martyrs. Not all of us will go to a literal cross. But we're to offer our bodies as living sacrifices. And that's not a cheap sacrifice. That's not a worthless gift that we give to God. To offer our bodies to God is to offer our very lives in hope that what we hold dear will be held dear by God and that he will recreate us into a world of love. God loves us. He has made us for this world. He has made our bodies. He has made us for physical life. He hasn't given up on that. And Christ has come to fix this dying life that we live. And if we are in Christ, then we need not fear. We need not fear death. If you're here as a non-Christian this morning... invite you to think about what it is that you look to for hope and comfort and solace in the face of death. If Christianity and the hope of God offered in Christ isn't going to be the solution for you in the face of death, then what will be the solution for you in the face of death? To not think about it? To tell yourselves things that don't ring true? To live in fear? Jesus offers us the hope of eternal life, not some disembodied existence away in the heavens, but the hope of resurrection. He offers it to each of us here when we place our lives into his life, giving of ourselves and entrusting ourselves to God in Christ. God loves us, amen, and he has given us hope in his son. Father, thank you that you have given us the hope that we have here as believers we recognize that our lives are frail. We cannot hold on to them. They slip like sand through the hourglass, and we are but a breath. As the scripture says, we are just like grass that withers and is gone away. But we thank you that you are the eternal, creating God, and that you who had power to make us from nothing have power to remake us from nothing. So God, we recognize here that we we are left to ourselves; we are nothing. But we know that in Christ we can be life eternal in You. And so God, we thank You for that. I pray for those here this morning that need that word of encouragement. God, drive it deep into their soul. And for those here, Lord, who haven't yet placed their faith and trust in You, may they come to see the futility of trying to find meaning and purpose and love and life in this life apart from the hope that we have in Christ. We pray this in Jesus' name, Amen.